The book of 1 Peter is an appropriate book for a time such as this. The church has now found itself in a re-emergent Rome, with idols popping up in every town square, temples worshipping the gods, infertility, sex cults and child sacrifice reach into every city and every family. And while the Romans were upfront and honest about what they worshipped, our society unashamedly demands that you call it normal, that you worship it, and don't you dare ask any more questions. And this has left many in the church feeling caught in a sort of whirlwind, rushing to anyone who can make the madness stop, hoping for a political figure, a new Constantine, to unite the empire and restore sense again. And this, for instance, could be a wild card, wild card up the sleeve of God, but remember, in the history of Rome, he played it 300 years into the church's existence. What we face today as churches are things which threaten everything we believe and value, and this is no understatement. What the Bible and nature makes plain about gender, marriage, the family, justice, and even when and how we can gather is under attack on each and every side. As I said, the book of 1 Peter is appropriate for a time such as this. The letter was written to a people who were isolated, ostracized, threatened, and in some cases, brutally murdered. And while I am no prophet nor the son of a prophet, these sort of challenges may begin to beset us on each side. And yet, despite all this, the Apostle Peter was not stressed. He wasn't fretting, he wasn't walking to and fro, he wasn't pacing his bedroom, he wasn't trying to appease the pagan world. Why? He knew Jesus. He knew the rightful king, and he knew this rightful king was coming. And he was establishing his rule and reign here on earth. And Jesus had some chosen out, outcasts, those who were mistreated, those who were maligned and standard, slandered, and they were going to be established eternally with him. You can think of it like this. Have you guys ever been in uh, PE class and there were two captains picking the teams? Some of you guys may have been the privileged few who were at the front of that list. Your name was called first and you knew you were just like athletic, jock, you were awesome, you were going to get there. But if you were, you know, like me, you may have got picked last. God picks the losers and then uses that team of losers to beat all the good team, <laughs> to beat all the strong, to beat those who think that they've got it in the bag. And so I have three points that I want to walk you through. Number one, the chosen man. Number two, the chosen exiles. And my last point, number three, is the chosen nation. So let's walk through this, these first two verses with me. Number one, the chosen man. So if you have your Bibles open, you'll know what the first word of this is. And the first word of 1 Peter is Peter. He starts with his own name. And Peter, we all know, is the apostle of Jesus. Now, Peter used to be called Simon, named after Simeon, one of the sons of Jacob, and he gets a new name from Jesus. Does anyone, random pop trivia, who knows what his name means? Rock, correct. In Aramaic, it's Cephas or Cephas, and in Greek, it's Petros, which is where we get the name Peter from. And if you've read the Gospels, you know that Peter is quite an important character. He's kind of Jesus' right-hand man, isn't he? He's the guy that travels alongside Jesus. He's the guy that often gets asked questions by Jesus. He's the guy that can't help himself but has to say something. He's 
He's an outrageous sort of fellow. He always has to get in there. He always has to make his presence felt. He's impulsive. He has high expectations of himself. And he thinks he's capable of following Jesus to the death. He even says as much to Jesus. He says, I will never disown you. I would rather die. Jesus is like, are you sure about that, Peter? Because before the rooster crows, as in before this night is over, you're going to reject me three times. Now, Peter was brash. He had some bravado about him. So when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, the first thing that came out was Peter's sword. And he rushes forward, being a fisherman his whole life, never really used the sword, lunges at the high priest's servant and cuts his ear off. Now, I don't know how that exactly worked. Maybe the high priest got out of the way just in time and the sword just nicked his ear and got it. But as soon as he realized that Jesus was intending to be arrested, what did Peter do? He booked it. He ran. But he still wasn't quite there. He still didn't reject Jesus. He kind of followed from afar. He didn't want the consequences. But then when someone recognized him and said, hey, you're one, one of the Galileans. You're the one, of, uh, one of his followers. He denies him three times. He refuses to be associated with Jesus. Why? Well, he didn't want to be rounded up and brought into the Sanhedrin and put on trial right next to his master, Jesus. And so instead, he says, I didn't know the man. He brings curses down upon himself. That's how much he wants them to know. I don't know this guy. I've got nothing to do with him. And then the rooster crows. Jesus looks directly in his eyes and Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. He was not that strong of a disciple. He thought he was, didn't he? He thought he would die in battle for Jesus. And he kind of proved that he would die in battle for Jesus. But would he die being put to shame in front of everyone? Would he die slowly? Would he be tortured as Jesus was? No. I can kind of relate to Peter. I don't know about you, but if you know me, I'm... I've got some passion about me sometimes. I don't know if you've ever learned that about me. And sometimes I greatly overestimate how much I will do for God. I greatly overestimate how much I follow God and how much I uh, want to do His will above all else. See, dying in battle is glorious. Dying in battle, you make a name for yourself. You know, you read all these biographies and you see all these amazing uh, followers of Jesus and they die in these amazing ways and you think, oh, how good would that be at the end of my life? I don't just die of an old age, but rather I die going out with a bang. But would we die in the corner for Jesus where no one recognizes it? Would we be put to shame? We like to think that, you know, all these great men and women who died, who were martyred for Jesus, they went in and it was just like awesome and you could see it and everyone was getting put to shame by it. But no, they were getting put to death as like enemies of the state. Shame was heaped upon them. They were unrigid. They didn't move. They didn't have support. You kind of look at that and you go, ooh, I don't know if I want that. I'd rather die in battle. I'd rather die at the end of the sword. I'd rather die in a way where it's heroic and everyone looks at me and thinks, that is a cool story. Whereas Peter, he does get put to death eventually. He gets crucified. And in a very Peter way, he doesn't want to be crucified the same way as Jesus because he doesn't feel like he's worthy enough. So he asks them to crucify him upside down. And he gets crucified upside down. Far more painful. It's like, Peter, you have to outdo Jesus on this one? What's going on, mate? But he really did. 
he really did feel unworthy to die in the same way as his Lord. And although he had abandoned Jesus, we must remember that Jesus did not abandon Peter. Remember that. When Jesus rose again, he sought Peter. He asked for Peter by name. He found Peter doing what Peter always did, which was fish. There he was out in the boat fishing and Jesus came up and he found Peter. And do you know what Peter did when he recognized that Jesus was standing on the shore? He jumped out of his boat and he swam to shore. He couldn't wait. He didn't want to bring the boat in. He couldn't wait to be there. And Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me more than all these? And he gave Peter three times to confess his love for Christ, to outdo his denials and his rejections. It's a beautiful story. And it speaks powerfully, this, especially the fact that we have the book of 1 Peter in front of us, speaks powerfully to the love of Jesus. How he will never leave one sheep behind. Never. It's impossible. He will not leave that sheep behind. He will leave the 99 and he'll claim what rightfully belongs to him. And Peter belonged to Jesus. And Jesus was going to show him abundant grace. Not only was Peter reinstated, but we see here in this letter... The next word, well, two words in English, but the next word in Greek, an apostle, a messenger. Now, the word apostle, you may hear it all the time, but it means an official messenger, someone who's sent out as an official representative of a party. And he speaks and he acts on behalf of that benefactor. And Peter would be the messenger who delivers the rock. And that rock is the gospel, the message of the word delivered to his people. And this foundation that is laid by the apostles, whom Peter was one of them, is the same foundation with which we build both our lives and our church upon today. And the letter we are reading is the first letter in a series of two. And the only writings we have from Peter himself. Although it's highly likely that the Gospel of Mark was written with Peter alongside, you know, Mark using Peter as the chief witness. But at the time that Peter writes this, he's at the end of his life. He's an old man. He's followed Jesus for a long time. He's established the church in Jerusalem alongside Jesus' half-brother James. He is the apostle to the Jews. He has a long and fruitful ministry, but there was a tyrant, a brutal man on the horizon. And big points if anyone knows who that was. Nero, the emperor Nero. And probably three years after this was written, Peter would lose his life. A chosen man. But did you notice what Jesus choosing men and women look like? It doesn't always look like the story we had planned for ourselves. Do you think when Peter grew up alongside his father Jonah, and he was on the boat and he was throwing all the line out and he was catching, raking in all these fish that he thought, oh, at the end of my life, I'm going to get crucified upside down in the city of Rome by the Roman emperor. See, Jesus' plans for Peter looked very different from what Peter had planned for himself. When Jesus came alongside Peter and he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men, he changed Peter's vocation. He was no longer someone who fished for fish. He was someone who fished for the hearts and souls of men and women. You see, when you are chosen by God as a chosen man or a chosen woman, your story changes from what you expect. Your story is different from what you expect. And you can decide to stay in the boat when Jesus calls you. You can say, 
I don't want to be fishers of men and women. I want to be me. I want to do what I want to do and I want to stay in my vocation and calling and I want to do what my dad did before me and what his dad did before him and I want to stay in that line or you can say, yes, Jesus, and you get out of that boat and you follow him. That's what being a chosen man or woman looks like. Following Jesus, no matter the cost. And when you do that, you become, my second point, a chosen exile. See, Peter is writing to a series of churches all across modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to these specific provinces. We see the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia listed here. And he describes these churches as elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, I feel like I've got to do a bit of uh, defining work here because those words probably don't jump out at you. Or like, I know exactly what he's saying right now. I know what all those words mean. Well, let's dive into it. This, the word dispersion or diaspora refers to the widespread Jewish community all over the Roman Empire. Empire. In fact, more Jews lived outside of Israel than lived in Israel. About one million Jews lived in the Roman province of Palestine, but between two and four million lived elsewhere in the empire. In fact, they were a huge chunk of the population of the empire. We don't quite recognize that, but Jews were a huge, uh, played a huge role in the Roman Empire. And every town you went to, you could be certain you will probably find a Jewish synagogue. Just like any town you go to in Australia, you're probably going to find a church there. In the Roman Empire, you would still find a synagogue, no matter where you went. Occasionally, they might be praying by the river because there's not enough men to form a synagogue. But apart from that, generally speaking, they were everywhere. And so this dispersion was all these Jewish communities all over the place. Rather than being where they were supposed to be in Palestine, they had their own little communities. And so Peter is writing, we see his audience, Jewish men and women who were dispersed amongst the Roman Empire. And he uses this word, elect. And that means, quite literally, chosen. No word that's better for this than chosen. Or maybe, selected. God has chosen for himself a people. Those that he has called out of this world and into his mighty church. If you believe in Jesus and you trust in his name, there's this weird kind of paradox that comes to you and you recognize that actually Jesus kind of chose you first. He gave you first the power and the ability to trust in him according to his grace and election. It was not ultimately your own decision first. Uh, His predestination came before your choice. And yet at the same time, you made a very real choice. It's just that God took the initiative. He was the first one. In, in a reconciliation, when, you know, you're hanging out, you know, you guys have, I'm sure you have very complex families and you've probably had at some point a conflict with someone in your family. How does that conflict get resolved? Well, one of the people has to take initiative, don't they? One of those people have to say, you know what, this is kind of messed up. I don't like this relationship being out of line. I'm going to go take the initiative and I'm going to restore this relationship. And sometimes... When it comes to God, we feel like we've recognized that our relationship with God's kind of messed up. So we feel like we took that first step to come to God. But that's not true. He took that first step towards us to initiate reconciliation with us. We were chosen in Him well before we decided to choose Him back. And Peter is remembering the words of Jesus spoken to him so long ago. John 15, 16. 
The same Greek word shows up here. I don't think I put it in, did I? No, I didn't put it in. All right, you're going to have to listen to me then. Jesus says, you did not choose me. That's about as black and white as it can get, isn't it? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Very fascinating language from Jesus. He's saying, guys, you didn't come in here and say, Jesus sounds like a really good guy. He sounds like the path I should take. I'm going to go follow him. No, Jesus says, hey, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I had a plan for you well before you even recognized it. Well before you even began your first word. It's the same word Peter's using here. And yet Peter adds another word to elect. What's that extra word? Exile. Now, you can translate this as kind of like chosen reject. And it's it's semi-close, but no no real uh, uh, translator worthy salt would actually do that. But it is a good way to do it. Now, exile, it's a bad word. When you hear that, you should, an ancient person would shudder. They're like, don't you dare call me an exile. Like, that is a bad faith to have. That is a faith in worse than death. Uh, it's the curse of Cain in Genesis 4. Cain was cursed to be a fugitive and wanderer of the earth. He had no people and he had no place. That was a curse put upon him. A man who has no people, who has no cause, who has no kingdom, who has no brotherhood, in the ancient world, that is a fate worse than death. A man without a city was no man at all. That was the way they viewed it. If you didn't have a city, a people, or a place, you're not a man at all. You're not worthy of any respect. And that is exactly what is happening to Peter's Jewish audience. If you were a Jew at this time, you would get put out of the synagogue if you followed Jesus. Your parents would disown you. In fact, they would say something along this, why do you hate us so much that you would follow Jesus? That would be said to you. That's, that's, that's pretty brutal, isn't it? Imagine getting hit with that. Do you hate us that much that you would follow this upstart, this pretend Messiah? Your parents would disown you, your children would rise up and denounce you, and in the most extreme situations, you would be stoned to death. Now, it's one thing to be stoned to death, if it's some guys you don't know, the execution is down the road. It's another thing when it is your mother or your father or your son pelting you with those rocks. And that is what happened to so many of these early Jewish followers of Jesus. It was a true exile. I don't know about you guys, but I think that's probably one of the hardest things you could ever go through. I do believe it is a fate worse than death to be rejected by your people and your place. Why would people do this? What would compel a person to make that kind of decision? What would make you do that in your family? Do you think that would be easy to go through? If your own children reject you? If your own parents threw you under the bus? Why would you do that? You would only do it if the thing you were doing it for was worth more. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 16. Starting from verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And Jesus is making it clear, you might lose this world following him. You might be denounced by your family, abandoned by your friends, ostracized by your community, but Jesus promises to repay each person with a glorious return, both here and in the world to come. We are not, exile, uh, we are not exiles, we are chosen elect exiles right? If you were just an exile, that is a fate worse than death. But if you are a chosen exile, cling to that word chosen with all your heart, because it means that you are in him, that you have been grafted into a new kingdom, that you aren't without a people or a place, but you now have a different people in a place. You're not without a city. You have a new city, the heavenly city, Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, a kingdom that is invading this earth right now. You belong to the rightful kingdom. The kingdom that is coming in and uh, destroying and getting rid of the old kingdom. You're jumping ship from the, the ship that's sinking onto the ship that is going to float. We belong to a new covenant, a new community, a new people forged in the work of the Spirit and the blood of Christ. You're giving up an old community for a new one and you have to remember that. The exile you may feel in this world is an exile that is worth taking. Because this world is passing away. And when you do that, you are grafted into a new nation. And that's my third point, the chosen nation. Peter is quick to add this qualifier. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in this passage. And he wants to give glory first to the Father in heaven. And this foreknowledge is not that God predicted in the future those who would believe in Jesus, but rather that their salvation was planned ahead of time by God's amazing foreknowledge. They didn't reach out to a distant God, rather God reached out to them and formed them into his beloved people. Just as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son, of his Son. And it was the Father's loving concern to choose them out of this world to bestow His blessings and His grace on this people. And God produced His relationship in them by the means of the Holy Spirit. That's where we see this next phrase, which is, in the sanctification of the Spirit. We see later He describes that as being born again to a living hope. Now, how many here feel like they've got a good grasp of what the word sanctification means? Yeah, Gary? All right, Gary's going to come up and explain it to us. No, I'm joking, mate. <laughs> it's a Greek word, which means being made holy. That's really all it means. Uh, these people are being set apart by God for his good purpose. Now, that phrase, holiness, can also be a bit vague if you don't add any qualifiers to it. What does it actually mean to be holy? Well, we know the word means to be set apart, or even better, pure in function. If you like really precise words, I really like that. It's very precise meaning. Pure in function. But what does that look like in a human being? Have a think. Think about all the people you know 
Who is the most holy out of them, apart from Jesus? What indefinable quality is it about them that makes them holy? Did you think of like the nicest person you know? Did you think of the, the friendliest, the person who prays the most? Well, if you felt picked the person who's the most Christ-like, you picked right. In First uh, Peter verses fifteen to sixteen, he says, "But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy." And we use this phrase Christ-likeness because that is precisely the point of Romans eight twenty-nine. We were predestined to be conformed into what? The image of the Son, Christ-likeness. It couldn't be a better phrase to define what holiness actually looks like. The more you learn about Jesus, the more you get into the Gospels, you pull apart His words, you learn, you sit at His feet, you hear from Him. The more you see how His words harmonize perfectly with the Old Testament, the more you see His work in the world, the more transformed and holy you will be. See, the Spirit, the whole purpose of the Spirit is to bring glory to Christ. The Spirit doesn't come into your life and say, hey, I'm here now, I'm the Holy Spirit, pay attention to the stuff I'm doing, the Holy Spirit will always point you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit will always give glory to Jesus. And that is what His work looks like. I mean, just look at the next phrase. Sanctification for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what this holiness looks like obedience, Christ-likeness. When a student is fully trained, he'll be like his master. And if Jesus is your master, you will become like him. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1.5. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Now, when God's Spirit reached into your life, He reached into your life, and He didn't, so, didn't really just, it wasn't for the purpose of just cleaning you up. He didn't like, that guy's dirty, let's clean him up, give him a shower, put some fresh clothes on him, and out the door he goes. That's not how it worked. I mean, yes, He did forgive you of your sins, He wiped your slate clean, He got rid of all your baggage that you might be carrying. Of course, that's a part of it, but God had a purpose in saving you. He didn't send you out into the mud again to go get filthy so you can come back, get another, have another shower, put some new clothes on. He saved you to a new way of being, a new kind of person. He's building within you a new kind of person, the person you were always designed and meant to be, right? The image of God, when God created you, and you were created with the image of God, fallen and sinful, so you've got the tension between the good part that God made in the image of God and then the depravity that came through sin and tarnished that. As you are now being conformed into the image of Christ, you're being conformed into the true you, the image of God that God made when He first made you. And that requires, first and foremost, obedience to Jesus. Now, the motivation for change doesn't come from wanting to be better or merely because God told you to do it, but it comes from a deep love of the God who redeemed you. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And for those that grow in their love of Jesus, who listen to his voice, obey his words, those things will become easier and easier. It's not that you start obeying Jesus and then you'll start to love him. Rather, when you start loving Jesus, then you will start to obey him. Then the things that he says, you're like, that's actually kind of important. That makes sense. You see his wisdom all over the world. You go, yes, that is the right way. I need to live that way. That is what it means to be a Christian. But if you think, oh, I can chase this love of Jesus through obedience, you're going about it the wrong way. Obedience flows from love, not love from obedience. And when you do this, your life will be more characterized by obedience to the truth. So what, what is good, what is beautiful. And that's the kind of transformation we can begin to see in those who follow Jesus. And you really can see it. You should be able to see it in their life. You should be able to see it in your own life. And that's what we want to see from a community forged after his image. And our obedience is for Jesus. It's motivated by love to him, fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. We have one last phrase. The sprinkling with his blood. This is a covenantal phrase. Those who have responded to the grace of God in Christ in this way are brought into covenantal relationship with God. You can think of, uh, there's a covenant that a lot of us have entered into and that's the covenant of marriage. It's a solemn vow that we make to one person. Well, this covenant is the solemn vow that God makes to you in Christ. The new covenant. The covenant in His blood. And this is actually from... Uh, Peter, a direct reference to Exodus 24. And this is a pretty gnarly scene. So read along with me. This is, the, uh, f- this is when the covenant is ratified in Israel. He says, Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The people were literally sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. That was how it was referred to. And yet Jesus' blood is the blood of a new covenant that is sprinkled on us. A new agreement between God and man. Mark 14, 24 says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. We commemorate this every time we take the cup of communion. That moment when you were sprinkled with the blood of Christ and all your sin was washed away and you entered into a new covenant, a new agreement with God. Not that of law-keeping and obedience, but of grace and hope. It is only by the sacrifice of Jesus that we are saved when he took our place, bore our sins, carried our shame, and he took it from us and it was nailed to the cross. It's only by faith in this work of Christ that you can be saved. It's only by that that you can claim to be part of the chosen exiles. And so we see Peter, the chosen man, writing to the chosen exiles who are being together formed into God's chosen covenantal nation. And it's amazing, really, when you reflect on these two verses, just how much theology is in it. And trust me, 
that was like the, the condensed version of what I could have talked about. And you guys are like, thank you, Cody, for <laughs> limiting it to what you have limited it to. But it is a wealth of theology and understanding packed in just these brief words of greeting. How amazing. But I have missed a phrase, last one. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. A wish of God's blessing on a person, that God's gracious gifts would flow, and that someone's life will be relatively free from troubles. And while this greeting sounds kind of prosperity gospel-y, doesn't it? We will quickly learn that the rest of First Peter, in the first of First Peter, that grace and peace can be multiplied at the same time you could be in the middle of a bunch of troubles. At the same time you can be in a bunch of suffering, you can see God's peace and grace multiplied to you. It's a much deeper greeting than it seems at face value. So Peter, he's preparing the church with the necessary truth and assurance they'll need to weather the coming storm. In just a few, in just some short greetings, he's reinforced to them their beautiful identity in Christ. The first thing they had to know was first that they were chosen by God. Before Peter says anything else, those who belong to Jesus have been chosen by him. Exiles who no longer belong to this carnal world that is fading away, but chosen citizens of a new kingdom. Our God is not their corrupt idols. Our loves are not their perversions. Our hates are not their outrages. Our laws are not their injustices. We are exiles and we belong to a different king. Remember that. Cling to that. Now, brothers and sisters, as we move to our application, what would you be freed from today if you believed that? Bit of a pointed question but it's worth thinking of. If you believed that you were known by God, that you were loved by God, and that you belonged to a different kingdom, what would change? First and foremost, do you feel that that is a current reality in your life? Or do you feel like Peter is writing to a different kind of person than you? That the audience that he's writing to, these elect exiles, that's not you. That's someone else. You're not part of that list. Well, normally when I set up something like that, I usually make you guys feel less, less stressed about it in the next phrase, but I, I'm not going to do that this time. Perhaps First Peter is the wake-up call we all need to once again love our position and role as elect exiles, to love our differences from the world and not resent them, to love our way of life rather than apologize for it, to really love our God without shame, to build beautiful marriages, flourishing households, to raise godly children, to disciple the newcomer, and to use our wealth for the glory of God's unfolding kingdom. So take heart, brothers and sisters. By the end of this sermon series, you will learn to do all of those things and more. It's my prayer that our church will look vastly different at the end of 1 Peter than we did at the start and that we will really embrace our roles in this church as elect exiles. Hopefully your brain hasn't been too exploded. Let's pray and get this truth uh, applied to our souls. Father, we thank you for the treasure trove that is your word to the wisdom that you have enclosed on each and every page. We thank you for the Apostle Peter, this man who, for some of us, we can relate quite heavily to. His character traits, his 
ambitions, his passions. They remind us of ourselves. But Father, we know that the most important thing about Peter was not necessarily who he was, but who you declared him to be. That he was chosen, an apostle. Father, we thank you that out of all of all, in all time, through, the, through all ages, you knew us from before the foundation of the world. You predestined us, you called us, you chose us, and you brought us into your fold. You called us your children. And Father, it can be hard to leave this world behind, but Lord, we know that we are inheriting a much more beautiful world, a world that is far surpassing to this broken and miserable world. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the tools necessary to reform this world, to bring it in obedience to your Son. But first and foremost, Lord, we have to bring our own souls into obedience to your Son first. And so, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit, would you sanctify us? Would you sprinkle us afresh with the blood of Christ? Would the covenantal realities of Jesus be made so firm and clear to our minds that when we come out of 1 Peter, we don't come out as wayward souls still lost in our loves and passions and carnal desires, but we come out of this loving your son Jesus, loving his church, loving our way of life, and being a light to the nations. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I pray that you would apply these, this truth in the hearts and souls of each man and woman, boy and girl, baby here, Lord. And for those here that don't know you, I pray, Lord, that you will make known to them your election, that your spirit would make clear to them the truth, that they would see your son, Jesus, as more valuable than anything else in this world. We praise you, Lord, for all your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.